The Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival creates and performs on the land of the Lekwungen and Wasainic peoples. We respect the relationship they continue to have with the land to this day and the strength of generational resilience in the face of ongoing systemic colonial violence and genocide. We are committed to the ongoing process of unlearning deeply embedded notions of white supremacy and colonial racism and to continuing to become better allies wherever we can. As you listen to this podcast, please consider your relationship to this land and remember that every settler is responsible for dismantling the colonial genocide that Indigenous people continue to face. Welcome to the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival's Soliloquy Project. Today's play is Henry VI, Part 2. Sound design and theme song for this podcast are by Taylor Lewis. The outro is presented by General Manager Candace Woodland. The podcast is hosted by Artistic Director Karen Lee Pickett. She interviews Dr. Erin Kelly. I'm here again with Dr. Erin Kelly, Associate Professor in English at the University of Victoria. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be here. And uh, today we are talking about one of the history plays, Henry VI, and this is from part two. There's three parts to this awesome play, and uh, uh, the character of Margaret. Right. And actually, I mean, it's it's always a little tricky to talk about the Henry VI plays in general, because I think that people tend to be less familiar with them than Shakespeare's other English history plays. The first, what we think of now as Henry VI part one is focused on uh, this reign of Henry VI. Henry VI historically became king after his father, Henry V, died. At that point, Henry VI was exactly nine months old. So he is crowned as an infant. He is the official king of England uh, throughout his entire childhood. And what we get in 1 Henry VI is the beginning of England losing France, that basically there are these military uh, conflicts in France between the English who are trying to hold France and the French who are trying to drive the English out. There's somebody who's helping the French out that you might have heard of, Joan of Arc, in that play. Henry VI Part Two starts with Henry uh, beginning to come into his adulthood. Um, at the beginning of the play, he is married. He gets married. He marries a French princess, uh, Margaret of Anjou. She's actually the, the daughter of a duke. That in itself is somewhat controversial. Um, and then it becomes clear pretty quickly that Henry VI seems to be a lovely person, a deeply spiritual person, a wonderful Christian, someone who is interested in prayer and virtue and religion, and who is a really terrible king, a really ineffective, ineffective king, uh, can't figure out how to hold power, can't figure out how to control people, can't figure out how to control his wife. And by the end of this play, we have the outbreak of violence that is considered to be the first battle in what becomes known as the Wars of the Roses. Uh, and then what happens after uh, two Henry Sixes, we get three Henry Six, which is more civil war, which is ultimately uh, the overthrow of Henry VI, the Yorks coming to power. And the Yorks coming to power um, means uh, 
King Edward IV, who is a York, um, who happens to be the oldest of three brothers. His youngest brother is a guy named Richard, who has a, a crook back, who then is, is going to wind up in another play that focuses on um, that particular king, who we, of course, know as Richard III. So that's where we are historically. Weren't, these were not written in that order, though. But they were weren't they? written in that order. And in fact, there's good reason to believe that this one was written first. It's early in Shakespeare's career, too. It's ex- we, we have the sense that it's extremely early, and extremely early for a couple of reasons. Um, generally speaking, scholars agree that this play, the composition of it, and first performances of it probably date to 1591, 1592. That's extremely early in Shakespeare's career. That would make Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, uh, roughly 27 years old. And now uh, scholars who do computer-aided stylistic analysis um, increasingly suggest that they have strong evidence that this play, for example, is co-written with Christopher Marlowe. So uh, this particular speech by Margaret, for what it's worth, though, is is not thought to be a, a Christopher Marlowe speech. It seems to be one of the sections of the play that's stylistically William Shakespeare more than stylistically Christopher Marlowe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and so Margaret uh, spans a lot of these plays and into Richard III as well. Right. In part one, Henry VI, we see her at the beginning as this young French noblewoman who basically is identified by the Duke of Suffolk as someone who he has the idea he will manage to get married to King Henry VI. And then at the beginning of this play, uh, second part of Henry VI, we get to see Margaret uh, actually arrive in England. And the first bit of news that they get is that uh, she has been brought um, from France. Henry has looked at her and said, yep, she's lovely. I definitely want to marry her. And then the actual information is revealed that she comes with absolutely no dowry, which means that she's bringing no money with her at all. And that she's also not bringing any kind of significant diplomatic uh, advantages either. So essentially, Suffolk has brought this French woman to marry the English king. And not only is she not bringing the advantages that a French queen should bring, but she's bringing a heap of problems and a heap of disadvantages. Um, And by the time we get to the third part of Henry VI, Margaret is a force in her own right. She actually is leading troops into battle. She is wearing armor. She is personally killing people. Um, She is, uh, you know, gleefully gloating over the uh, death and suffering of her enemies. You know, she does things like, you know, soaks a handkerchief in the blood of one of her enemy's dead sons and then makes him wipe his eyes with it. I mean, it's she, she's, she's outrageous. She's wild. She's cruel. Um, and then we get to see her one last time in Shakespeare's Richard III, where Margaret, who has been then, because Henry VI, her husband, has been killed, um, her son has been killed, she is now 
you know, basically no longer the English queen because all of the men who would keep her in that position are dead. She's about to go back to France. But the very last thing that happens before she she flees England is that she shows up in Richard's court and curses him and curses him for all of the terrible things that he has done to her and her family. And one of the things that's going on in Shakespeare's Richard III is at least the glimmer of a possibility that these curses actually do um, come to fruition. Well, why don't you talk a little bit about the the speech and where it where it falls in the play? Yeah, I mean, so the speech is actually almost dead center in the middle of the play, and what's happened um, up to this point is that, um, as I said, the play begins with Henry marrying uh, Margaret, but even though he's marrying her, uh, he still has a protector at that point. There still is a Lord protector who is de facto running the country. Um, that Lord protector is Gloucester. Um, and what happens in the first half of the play is increasingly, uh, the pushing out of that Lord protector. So, Hey, uncle Gloucester, Gloucester, it's been lovely. Um, you've done a fine job, so grateful, but hand it over. Um, so Gloucester does resign. He does step down. Um, he very quickly after that is actually arrested by his one of his enemies. Uh, at the beginning of the scene, Henry is coming in. He's very upset that his uncle, the former protect, Lord Protector Gloucester, has been accused of treason. But when they show up, Gloucester's dead. And then they bring the body out. And as they examine the body, there's an explanation uh, based on the evidence of the body and the physical appearance of the body that this does not look like a natural death, that this looks like a murder for various reasons. Um, Henry then basically has this expression um, upon having all of this terrible stuff explained to him, which is, ah, woe is me for Gloucester. Margaret at this point speaks up and basically brings herself into the king's attention or at least attempts to do so by saying, be woe for me, more wretched than he is. In other words, she is basically saying, you know, I am in a worse position than this uncle of yours who has just been murdered which is an extreme thing to say. Um, and on the one hand, I think there are ways to see this particular speech by Margaret as an expression of her being uh, kind of terrible, kind of monstrous. Um, she is basically insisting that she should have more of the king's attention and pity and sorrow and empathy than someone who's been murdered. <laughs> Uh, she is um, basically uh, also uh, doing this. This is not just a private conversation between the two of them. There are lots of other people in this scene. Uh, one of the figures who's in this scene is the Duke of Suffolk, who, as I mentioned, um, we know actually hired the murderers who did this. Remember, Suffolk is the guy who brought Margaret over from France in the first place and has been having this inappropriate relationship with her. So in some ways, part of what Margaret might also be doing here is helping to um, draw attention away from 
who might have done this. Um, she's creating a big old distraction. She's publicly critiquing her husband, the king, that part of what she's doing in this long speech is pointing out how when she was brought over from France, that she was brought over with the sense that she was going to marry a king and that he was going to be a great king and that she was going to be the queen of a great king. And essentially what the speech boils down to in part is, yeah, that hasn't worked out. And in part, it's because of you, Bubby. Um, so there, there's a way in which she's not being a, a terribly supportive or helpful spouse at this point, which in the early modern period is never seen as a terribly, terribly positive thing. Um, and uh, you know, she is basically, um, she's calling for her own death. She's basically complaining that her life is ruined, that everything is terrible. It's, it's, it's a moment where it might be easy to see her as monstrous and extreme and out of control. Um, and yet on the other hand, it's a fascinating speech. Um, it is, I would say that, even as it presents Margaret as very, very extreme and maybe behaving inappropriately here, it is a moment when we get some perspective, uh, when we get her perspective in a way, where we do, in fact, get the sense that she has been, you know, literally brought from her country to a foreign country. Uh, she describes how she has been on this ship to England in a storm where the storm is trying to drive the ship back and how uh, in her naivete and youth, apparently, that all she really wanted was to get to England because there was this idea that it would be great once she got there. Um, and that, in fact, you know, she talks about how she's thrown a jewel shaped like a heart. So, it, so in other words, she's kind of expressing, um, you know, I had this sense of, of love you know, both for the country and for the king, that, that she's expressing in all sorts of ways that she wants this to work out. Um, one way I like to think about this is in a way, Margaret is describing here almost a kind of fairy tale princess role. Uh, what was supposed to happen was I was supposed to be the princess. I was supposed to come over and marry the king and everything is supposed to work out where he loves me more than anything and he's a great king and everything is wonderful. And that isn't how this is working, guys. How this is working is that the king seems a lot more interested in everyone but me. <laughs> doesn't seem to be paying too much attention to me and in the meantime doesn't even seem like he's going to hold on to this kingdom for very long because what I can see is that all of you other people are manipulating him and that he's weak and ineffectual and and kind of you know not doing a great job. Um, well, that railing too against that that position. I mean she's yeah. been she's been married off. She has no choice uh, who she yeah. marries. Yeah. She doesn't even she doesn't even see the king until after nope. she marries. In fact, in fact, she 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 basically marries Suffolk in the king's uh, in absentia. So the king is literally there as a proxy. So the guy she marries is not the guy she's actually married to. The first time she sees him, she's already married to him. Um, and, you know, over the course of this speech, that in some ways it is this expression of, yeah, that she's powerless, she's vulnerable, um, she has nothing protecting her, and that um, she she is really in this terrible, terrible 
uh, situation. Um, and I would say that in some ways this is, uh, if, if we see all of these plays as following an arc of Margaret's character, that in some ways this is the moment of Margaret coming into her own as autonomous, as having some agency, as going from being a victim. And after this point in the play, she increasingly is more active, proactive, militaristic, violent. Um, but this may be a speech that helps to explain how she gets there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so uh, interesting, the, the politics at play here. And uh, um, maybe, maybe you could talk a little bit about how that, uh, how that landed with the Elizabethans. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very, very interesting because part of why uh, people in 1591 uh, would surely have been interested in this play, I mean, the Wars of the Roses, uh, these English civil wars were uh, history from about 100, 150 years before the time that this play was written. So history, um, definitely history, but history of the country that people were living in. But it's also interesting, I would argue, because basically you have people who were living at the time, you know, under the rule of a monarch, Queen Elizabeth, who is a descendant of exactly these people. And you still are operating with a political system where the grounds on which someone gets to say that they are or are not the rightful monarch is their ability to trace these elaborate and complicated genealogies. And if you think Henry VI's claim is a bit of a mess or the Duke of York's claim is a bit of a mess, don't look too hard at the Tudors because the Tudors are really a mess. And by the time you get to Queen Elizabeth, who is the last of the Tudor monarchs to rule, it's particularly a mess because depending on, again, how you squint at it, maybe her parents weren't legitimately married or maybe you know she was declared a bastard and that would push her out of the line of uh, uh, it's 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 all a bit mussy and and fuzzy and and difficult to tease out i would say that for people in the 1590s the henry six plays are both you know showing the dangers of a status quo but also showing the significant dangers of deviating from that status quo um and as such i think uh we can maybe understand why they might be an object of fascination for people in their own difficult cultural moment i mean remember by the time we get to 1591 elizabeth has been on the throne since 1558 at this point, some things have become pretty clear that weren't clear when she first came to the throne. Um, Elizabeth is never going to marry, and she is never, ever, ever going to ha- produce out of her own body a clear, legitimate heir. So when she dies, and oh, by the way, at this point, she's old, she's getting long in the tooth, who's going to be the next monarch? Who's going to come after Elizabeth? Uh, a lot of people in the 1590s would sleep a lot better at night if only she would officially name an heir. And that is something that Elizabeth refuses to do. 
So the 1590s are a period of a lot of people arguing about who might have the best claim and who's likely to be the next monarch after Elizabeth dies, which surely is going to happen at some point. Um, in that context, I think the Henry VI plays are, are, would be giving an English audience a lot to think about. Indeed. Well, um, you've certainly given us a lot to think about <laughs> today. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I genuinely hope that for some people for whom the Henry VI plays are less familiar, that this particular speech will give them an excuse to, or uh, a, a bit of a reason to begin to explore these really uh fascinating, fascinating plays that are full of great scenes and great speeches and some fascinating battles and some really, really extreme acts of violence. Um, so uh, lots and lots of good stuff here to explore. Well, thanks so much for joining us again, Thank Aaron. you so much, Karen. And we'll look forward to speaking with you the next time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Soliloquy Project, produced by the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival. To donate or for more information about our festival, please visit www.vicshakespeare.com. That's www.vicshakespeare.com. Stay safe and cozy this winter, and we'll see you again soon.